This week on Geek Explained, Chapter 4 of Joketober brings us back to where it all began, the comics. And in this month's Geek Explained Spotlight, we're taking a look at a brand new take on a classic concept. What would happen if the Joker went sane? Join us for an extra special Joketober edition of the Geek Explained Spotlight series on Batman White Knight. Welcome back to Geek Explained, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is another edition of the Geek Explained Spotlight. But this one's a little different. This is part four of Joketober, which is our entire month of October dedicated to the Joker, the Clown Prince of Crime. Uh, we've covered pretty much every single... Um, media version of the Joker that we could possibly have. We've talked about uh, animation, we've talked about video games, we've talked about the film, and now we're going to dive back into the comics. The comics, of course, is where the Joker was born. Uh, the Joker has been a, a long-standing character for a very, very long time, and uh, today we're going to be talking about one of my personal favorite Joker stories. Uh, it's probably the newest classic Joker story, something that I would refer to as an instant classic, and that is Batman White Knight. Um, I love this story. This kind of sn snuck up on me uh, at the end of 2017 and into 2018. I think it was one of the most consistently well-made books uh, that DC put out. And I think for me, Mr. Miracle kind of uh, outshined it for a bit just because of what a novel concept that Mr. Miracle book was. But I've got a special place in my heart for Batman White Knight. And uh, with the sequel, Curse of the White Knight, in full steam this uh, pretty much for the rest of this year, I figured we should talk about the book that really kind of started off this new uh, White Knight world, this new White Knight Elseworld, if you will. Uh, we're also talking about episode two of the final season of Arrow this week in our weekly review, as well as, of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we jump into all of that, let's head on over to this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, we got some news for you this week, uh, mostly DC news, actually, and I think that's pretty interesting, but we're going to kick it off. Of course, we have our four uh, topics, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. We don't have any miscellaneous news at the moment for this week, so we are going to start off with uh, film news. So, in film news, we got two pieces here. First off, we got the final trailer for Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. I'll believe it when I see it, when it, uh, referring to the uh, final trailer. 
I'm sure we're going to get another one, but I thought it looked good. I'm really interested in seeing exactly how J.J. Abrams is going to blend the elements of the original trilogy here. Uh, we do see a little glimpse of Emperor Palpatine. I'm sure we're going to get some kind of explanation on how he survived, whether he's a Force ghost or survived through some kind of weird cloning or however he survived. I hope we get some definitive, uh, not hokey explanation for why he's still around. Visuals look great. The, uh, the version of the Star Wars theme that they use here is fantastic. Really fills you with this... Uh, just this feeling of, okay, cool, we're heading into the endgame here. So I really enjoyed it. And overall, I'm excited. I'm excited to see uh, exactly what they do with this final episode, and uh, hopefully we get the finale that we all deserve. Heading over next to DC Comics, we got another casting announcement for The Batman. Last week we talked about the Catwoman casting, Zoe Kravitz joining the cast, and now we have... An official casting, even though I'm sure some people are still reporting that he's just in talks. Uh, Matt Reeves has confirmed that Paul Dano will be portraying the Riddler in this film. This comes kind of on the heels of the news breaking that Jonah Hill, who had his pick of either Penguin or Riddler to play in the film, passed. Passed on the film. We're not sure why. We're not sure the exact reason why he passed on the film. Um... I think a lot of people were expecting him to play Penguin, but the idea of him playing the Riddler was really interesting. But with him passing on the film, I think this casting of Paul Dano is a great bounce back for them. Paul Dano, for those of you who don't know, has been working uh, in Hollywood for a while. He's not like... I wouldn't say he's like super well known, but he's worked a lot. He's done a lot of stuff. I'm just looking at his... Uh, his imdb right now and he's been in to just give you a couple samplings here uh 12 years a slave he's a swiss army man he was in looper which i really enjoyed uh cowboys and aliens all the way going back to stuff like uh there will be blood the sopranos like he's got stuff he's been here for a while he's a great actor i'm a big fan of his and i thought he was really interesting uh matt reeves kind of dropped the news on twitter showing a picture of him with the caption edward nashton so they're going to be going with the original uh all right not the original but i guess the more uh recently uh created alias for him that being edward nashton uh, a lot of people know him as edward nigma and um, it was recently revealed, just like the past like 10 years, I think, that uh, Edward Nigma was just a uh, pseudonym for him and that his real name is Edward Nashton. So I like Paul Dano. I think he's a perfect type for the Riddler. And I think he's going to do really well. And I'm enjoying the, uh, the interesting takes that they're... Uh, that they're doing for these Batman castings. Uh, Zoe Kravitz, I think, is going to knock it out of the park. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, who is still kind of rumored and talks to play Commissioner Gordon, is still fantastic. Uh, someone told me the other day that they thought that uh, Mark Maron should be Commissioner Gordon, and that's all I can see now. I want Mark Maron to be Commissioner Gordon, but if he's not going to be Commissioner Gordon, Jeffrey Wright is absolutely the correct choice. And for the Riddler, I think Paul Dano is going to do really good, so I'm really excited about that. Jumping over to TV news, uh, Watchmen 
premiered this past Sunday. Uh, I watched it. I'm not going to give you my full thoughts right now because I am looking at making it a segment. Maybe just like a Geeksplain Extra every Monday. Uh, just talking about the episodes each week. I had a little bit of stuff that I had to figure out at home, so we're not going to get we're not going to have it for this week, obviously, but uh, starting next week, I'm kind of looking to do a Geeksplained Extra, maybe title it Watching the Watchmen, uh, so definitely look for that. Uh, we'll be pushing that out to the feed every Monday, just kind of reviewing the episodes that drop on Sundays, but to give you a brief glimpse, I liked it. I really liked it. I'm looking forward to talking about more of it so uh this coming monday I look forward to episode one and two in review and uh yeah that's it for tv news jumping over to comics news and i wish that uh this comics news was more positive i'm just gonna preface that i wish that i was talking about stuff that i'm excited about but Unfortunately, that is not the case as of right now. And unfortunately, and it pains me to say it, um, it's going to be DC news for both of these. And I'm not excited about either of them. Um, so, starting off, because I the the second point is going to... I'm just going to go on a rant, I think. And I'm not looking forward to that. So, um, I'm going to talk about 5G. Uh, 5G has been in the works at DC for a little while now. We don't know exactly what it is, but um, we've DC has been dropping hints of it for a while, and uh, this 5G project is not a new network for DC to be on. Um, it is actually referring to the fifth generation that kind of all rolls into this whole uh, DC timeline that we're looking at. Uh, DC is still working on their official complete timeline for the DC Universe, which incorporates everything, just everything. And um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, right around uh, New York Comic Con, that they're looking at making a definitive uh, timeline that would kind of retroactively put Wonder Woman as the very first superhero to ever make her debut in DC Comics. She would be the first generation, and the second generation would be headed by Superman. Uh, but it looks like they have the first four generations mapped out, DC does anyway. Uh, we don't know exactly the particulars of each generation, but uh, 5G is apparently the fifth generation that is on that is going to be coming soon. And... Uh, it looks like there's going to be some massive shakeups, uh, and all this stuff takes place next year in 2020. We don't know definitively about all this stuff. A lot of this is rumor, but the sources that have kind of put this info out have been uh, pretty good at uh, leaking the stuff before. So even though I definitely think you should take this with a grain of salt, um, you should expect at least some of this to be true. So right now, the big news that's going on is uh, the Justice League. Justice League is the premier team for DC Comics, of course, and it looks like there's going to be some major shakeups in the DC roster when it comes to their Justice League. Pretty much all of the Justice League members are going to be handing off their uh, titles to a younger generation, but it's not the people who you think it's going to be. So right now I'm looking at a brief list right here. Um, it does look like we we don't have any kind of uh, distinct choices for a couple of them, but it looks like the team 
as it is, is going to consist of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, The Flash, uh, Cyborg, and either... Um, or Cyborg, or Martian Manhunter, and Aquaman. So it's gonna. It looks like it's gonna be a seven-person team. They haven't. We haven't gotten a dis a definitive um, confirmation on whether it's gonna be Martian Manhunter or Cyborg. But for the people that we do know, um, Aquaman doesn't have a distinct person yet who is going to be uh, taking over the role. But for the remaining five, we do have rumors of who is going to be taking their spots. So starting off with The Flash, uh, The Flash apparently might be handing off his role to Owen Mercer. Who is Owen Mercer, you might ask? Well, he is the son of, Owen, of um, Captain Boomerang. Owen Mercer is the son of Captain Boomerang, who for some reason also has super speed. So he has all of Captain Boomerang's boomerang skills coupled with super speed that the original Captain Boomerang, Digger Harkness, did not have. Uh, Owen Mercer, really the last time that we saw him was a brief glimpse in uh, the New 52, but the last time that he, he mattered um, was during or was after Identity Crisis, where he took over the role from his father who died during that event. Um, I don't know how I... I don't know how to feel about that. Um, Owen Mercer, we don't really have a defined characterization for him, especially now that the New 52 happened and with Rebirth going on. Um, so I'm not sure how I feel about it. Next up, we have uh, Green Lantern, and it looks like Green Lantern is going to be... Uh, an interesting pick for a lot of people. I mean, I think a lot of people who've been following uh, the Young Justice book, as I have, kind of pegged Teen Lantern to be taking over that uh, that role eventually. But it looks like that's not going to be the case. It looks like we're going to be getting um, Sojourn or Joe Moline. Uh, if you don't know that name... She is going to be the lead of the upcoming Green Lantern book from DC's Young Animal line called Far Sector. I'm looking forward to it. I really like um, these different takes on characters, and I think uh, the, just the Green Lantern Corps is just a goldmine for introducing new characters as Green Lanterns, and because they're like a essentially a police force, you can have so many different people hold that title. We already have like five or six different Green Lanterns of Sector 2814. Now with Far Sector, which is coming out in November, um, Joe Moline is going to be the main character. And she, just from the uh, concept art that I've seen, uh, the press release for that book, which is dropping on November 13th, uh, she looks badass. So I'm interested. I don't know if um, I'll be into her taking over the role. But I mean... We don't know the character yet, so I'm interested. Uh, next up, diving into Wonder Woman. It looks like she is going to be relinquishing her role, her role. I don't know why that was so hard. Uh, to Cassie Sandsmark, and Cassie Sandsmark, longtime fan of hers. She's Wonder Girl in the Young Justice book. Um, this is the only one who I looked at through this group as like, yeah, that makes sense. She's a legacy character. She's Wonder Girl. Uh, the only person who would make more sense would be Donna Troy, but we don't know what the hell is going on with her, especially with uh, her being 
inducted into the new Secret Six by the Batman Who Laughs, but Cassie Sandsmark's a great character, and it I don't know how I feel about her joining the Justice League, especially with the people who are going to be taking on uh, the Superman and Batman roles respectively, but um, I like her character, and she might be the linchpin for this new fifth-generation Justice League. But jumping into Batman, now this is interesting, I think. Uh, there's been rumors for most of this year that in 2020 the Batman role is going to be uh, taken over by an African American black or uh, an African American Batman. Um, a lot of people are up in arms about this. I don't care as long as it's a good story. And I, I think along with a lot of people, just kind of assumed that Duke Thomas was going to be in that role. He's the one who, as the signal, has been kind of. Um, I don't want to say like bred, but like really trained up and almost positioned in this higher role. Because Batman, even during the Batman in the Signal Mini, uh, told him like, "I'm going to make you. I'm going to give you something more. You're not going to be a Robin. You're going to be something greater." And I guess he's going to be staying as the Signal because he is not going to be taking on the Batman role. That is going to go to the current Batwing, Luke Fox. I don't. I. Um, I just don't care about Luke Fox. And I know that's, you know, mean. But I just, I have never read a book where Luke Fox has really grabbed me as a character. Um, he's fine. I don't, he's not like offensive to me. But it's just like, why give him the role when A, he's never seemed really into it. And B, there are so many other characters who could take that role. Um, Tim Drake, who is now Drake, and that also makes me mad. Um, he could be Batman, and it works with Cassie Sandsmark being Wonder Woman. Uh, Nightwing has been in that role before. Damian Wayne has expressed uh, that he, you know, Batman is his birthright. And when we talk about who's going to be Superman, that would make more sense. And then, I mean, Duke Thomas, like I said, Duke Thomas is a great character. If you didn't read We Are Robin, you need to go back and pick that up because We Are Robin was a fantastic book. Duke Thomas is an incredible character. And this is a real, uh, it's a real shame. So finally, we move to Superman. And I wish I could be excited about this. There is... Almost every single bone in my body wants me to be excited about this character becoming Superman. But I'm just not. And the character that they have tapped is John Kent. John Kent, the son of Superman and Lois, is going to be taking over the Superman role. And I... Okay, here's the thing about John Kent. I love John Kent as a character. I love, 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 love him. But I love him in the... Tomasi and Gleason Superman run when he was the kid who was trying to figure out what his life is going to be uh, alongside Damian Wayne as the Super Sons um, and then Bendis came through and he just wrecked everything with that character he sent him off uh, Lois and Clark are in this weird open marriage thing um, and then they aged him up and they brought him back so now he's it would be weird for him to be hanging out with Damien because Damien's still like 13 and John is like almost 20 at this point. 
Um, and then they decided, oh, the reason we aged him up was to bring him to the Legion of Superheroes. And I'm like, okay, you know what? In a way, that makes sense. I like the Legion. We don't need him because we have Monel, and Monel is a better fit for the Legion. But fine. If that was your goal all along to get a Superboy on the Legion, fine. But it seems like, and rumor is right now, that they are going to age him up again to make him an to make him an adult to be Superman. And it's just like, what was the point of aging him up in the first place if you were just going to age him back up to being an adult? Like, what is the point of all this? I don't get it. I don't understand why they're doing this. Um, I just, like, I get it. You're trying to get people in. You're trying to bring us new uh, legacy characters who can bring on that mantle. But it's like, you have characters, why is Owen Mercer becoming the Flash when you have a perfectly good Wally West who is now the defender of the multiverse? Why are you bringing in Luke Fox to be Batman when there's a perfectly good Tim Drake, Duke Thomas, anybody in that Bat family who would be a better fit for that character? And why? Why are you aging up John Kent again? to be Superman when you have a perfectly good Connor Kent in Young Justice who needs this. Like, he needs an identity for himself since coming back to Young Justice, he doesn't really have one. He's just the heavy for Young Justice. And it's like, ah, it's just so frustrating. It, I don't know where they're going with this. Uh, of course, again, this is all rumor and speculation right now, but if this is all true, like, what are they thinking? What is going on? Um, I'm going to move on because I'm getting angry, and I I know I'm only going to get angrier with this next one, but um, they announced, DC did, and Brian Michael Bendis did, that with Superman number 18, or is it 17? It's one of those books. Superman is going to reveal his identity to the world and get rid of Clark Kent. I have made it very clear that I have not enjoyed Brian Michael Bendis' Superman. I just don't. It His whole run so far in both Superman and Action Comics has been... I don't like where DC has Superman right now, so I'm resetting him to where I want to write him. And it flew in the face of uh, the Tomasi and Gleason run of Rebirth. It flew in the face of all of the character development that we had gotten between Lois, John, and Clark. And now Bendis is like, you know what? He doesn't need Clark Kent. And... I can't fit into a podcast. I can't fit into this new segment. How angry that makes me. Getting rid of Clark Kent is like getting rid of Peter Parker. Peter Parker is so integral to the character of Spider-Man that to get rid of the Peter Parker persona for him to just be Spider-Man would be a disaster. Similarly, getting rid of Clark Kent has never worked in any of the times that they've done it in the comics, and Bendis doing it here just feels like he doesn't care about Superman. He doesn't care about the character 
of Superman. He doesn't care about the world of Superman. He doesn't care about his interpersonal relationships. He doesn't care about his supporting cast. All he cares about is telling a story that he wants to tell. And if he wants to tell a Superman story that doesn't do anything or interact with anything that has been built up through the New 52, through Rebirth, go write a DC Black Label book. Everybody's doing it now. Grant Morrison is doing plenty with his Green Lantern book, but he is still staying within the parameters of the canon of DC Comics. Frank Miller is writing his own Superman. It lost me. That last book was atrocious. And I just... I'm just, I'm so tired of Bendis throwing away stuff that he doesn't like because that's not the version of Superman he wants to write. It just makes me so angry and so frustrated, not just with Brian Michael Bendis, but with DC with allowing him to do that. Why would they keep letting him do stuff which is tanking the character? It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm just, ah, I'm at an impasse here, and I'm really frustrated by this. I am so excited for what DC's doing in their movies right now, and I just don't know what direction they're going with their comics. And it's never been like that. Like, I've never had that. Even when the new 52 came out, I was like, okay, they've got stuff. They know what they're doing here. And it's like, they're just... I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm just, I could rant on this for another two hours, but I'm not going to because we do have some stuff to talk about today that I'm actually excited about. So um, DC, like what the hell are you doing? I'm going to leave it on off that. Um, and that is going to do it for this week's news segment. I'm sorry that I got uh, a little ranty there and I got angry about it, but this is like, I care about this stuff and I care about Superman. Superman's my favorite superhero. Um and I just, ah, it's frustrating. But anyway, moving on to our main course, our entree, if you will, of the podcast, which is our Geek Explains Spotlight on Batman White Knight. See, there were two guys locked in a lunatic asylum. And one night, one night they decided they didn't like that anymore. They decided to escape. So they made it up to the roof, and there, just across this narrow gap, they see rooftops stretching across town, stretching to freedom. Now the first guy, he jumps right across, no problem, but his friend, oh, no way, he's afraid of falling. So the first guy, he has an idea. He says, hey, I got this flashlight with me. I'll shine it across the gap between the buildings, and you can walk across the beam and join me. But the second guy says, what do you think I am, crazy? You just turn it off when I'm halfway across. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I think one of my favorite things about doing segments like this is making intros. 
I just I I get this weird satisfaction from making an intro that sounds good to me. I don't know if you enjoyed it, but I love doing stuff like that. And I love this intro specifically because it draws from Batman Mask of the Phantasm, an instant classic. It didn't do so well in theaters when it was first released way back in the early 90s, but steadily throughout the years, people have started to tune in to what this movie is. And Batman Mask of the Phantasm might just be the best Batman movie ever. And it is absolutely in the class of instant classic. And there's one other story that I can think of in recent memory that I can look at as an instant classic, and that is the topic of today's episode, which is Batman White Knight. Now, Batman White Knight is part of the DC Black Label line, retroactively. It wasn't originally a Black Label book, but it is now. And this book being both written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy with uh, colors by Matt Hollingsworth is nothing short of an instant classic. This book talks about the idea of what would happen if Joker took all of the drive, all of the anarchist tendencies, all of his you know, planning and machinations and put it towards something good. Put it towards the rebuilding of Gotham. Put it towards turning Gotham against Batman. And we've seen this before. We've seen this concept of a story before. You know, Joker goes sane. We've seen this on numerous occasions throughout the Bronze Age, the Silver Age, the you know, the modern age, the whatever, Iron Age, whatever, there's always a story of what happens if the Joker decides to stop being the Joker. And we've gotten different iterations of this throughout the years, including, you know, where he just kind of gives up being Batman or being the Joker and just starts living a weird normal life. But this is, I think, the best version of that story. This is the best interpretation of that story. And that's for a lot of reasons. Uh, this book, first of all, is gorgeous. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy is a stellar artist, and he makes every single page of every single issue look absolutely stunning. From his character design, and everybody gets character redesigns here, um, to his backgrounds, to the colors from Matt Hollingsworth, just everything about this book is gorgeous. And it is just, I would say just edges out the storytelling because the storytelling is also phenomenal again sean gordon murphy writing this as well um this is a fantastic story and this what i think does is unlike previous stories which were also elseworld stories this one sets up you know a world this one sets up a universe this one sets up a line of comics that you can really like sink your teeth into like i want to know more about this world i want to know more about these characters this can be an ongoing thing and i really genuinely think that this this book is really was the sleeper hit of 2018, 2017-2018. Uh, first issue came out in October of 2017, so it's basically two years old. And I think for a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, like Mr. Miracle just kind of swept up 
everything for everybody because of how good it was. But this book kind of flew under the radar and really uh, quietly became one of the best Batman stories in a good long while. And today we're going to talk about why I think that is, honestly. Um, there will be some pretty heavy spoilers in this. If you haven't read this book, do yourself a favor, go out, pick up the trade, pick up the hardcover, whatever you want to do. Uh, the trade right now you can get for 20 bucks at your local comic book shop. Um, and just read this, because it's a fantastic story. Uh, so feel free, pause this, go read the story, come back, or we're going to discuss. So kicking off this discussion, I really wanted to just talk about the idea of what makes this book different from other previous Joker stories. And I think what, for me, makes a huge difference in the story is a lot of this really is a Batman story. And I know that sounds like weird, because, I mean, his name's on the title, Batman White Knight. Uh, fun fact for you, this was originally supposed to be called Joker White Knight of Gotham before they changed it, because Batman sells comic books. But this story really dives into the duality of Joker and Batman and the idea that Batman can be kind of a dick sometimes. And you get to see this idea of Batman and his lack of accountability right away in the first issue. Um, he's chasing the Joker and you see him, you know, knocking over security guards, driving his Batmobile on top of people's roofs, stuff that like we're used to seeing but never have really like given a second thought to. And I think that's really interesting that they decided to go that route. Um, because it's not something we talk about often enough. You know, the idea that Batman causes a lot of collateral damage. I mean, if you just look at the Batman the Animated Series, his frickin' Batmobile is, like, the length of three cars. And you see him pulling all these, like, sharp left and right turns and, you know, you know, knocking around traffic. Like, you don't ever think of what happened to those people. Like who were knocked around by the Batmobile. You don't ever think of, you know, who was living in the houses that Batman drove his Batmobile on top of. And so this book really dives into the idea of what would happen if we started to take accountability for what Batman was doing and really what Batman's war on crime does for Gotham. And we get to see a lot of... Um, Batman when it comes to his effect on uh, the different classes in their society, in Gotham's uh, socio-economic structure. So for instance, for the higher-ups, the elite, the 1% of Gotham, Batman's great. He is constantly uh, tracking down uh, criminals who are out to steal from them, and all of his uh, battles with supervillains happen in um, low-income neighborhoods. So what they do and what they set up through this is the what's known as the Batman Devastation Fund. And so they describe this in, you know, pretty early on in the story that at least a few different of Batman of uh, Gotham's elite go to these spots where Batman has had these climactic encounters with supervillains that have caused pretty heavy damage to these low-income neighborhoods. And those low-income neighborhoods are declared uh, bat impact zones. And so rich people go in, they buy up all the property there, they flip it, and they sell it for a huge profit. So Batman has no idea this is going on, by the way. And so he is figuring out what the hell is going on with this. And then there's something called the Batman Devastation Fund, which is basically this, um, this trust in Gotham that is 
devoted to repairing all the damage that Batman causes. And you find out later that the entirety of the Batman Devastation Fund is provided by Wayne Enterprises. And so that's kind of how uh, Jack Napier kind of pieces together the idea that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Uh, though we don't know for sure if that's how he... Well, we find out that's how he does it, but we find out later that that's not necessarily how the Joker knows. So I think it's really interesting also because not only does it affect you know the upper-class citizens of Gotham, but it also affects the lower class. So we see a lot of uh, focus put on this area called Backport. And Backport is kind of what the Narrows are for uh the christopher nolan films they're the ghetto they're the you know lower income slums of gotham and so you see a lot of um social issues that we are experience in today's culture experienced there so this distrust of the police force you know the lack of accountability all of this stuff that we see so often in the news um you know, innocent bystanders being gunned down, that kind of thing. And it's really interesting dropping that idea and that um, real-world problem into the fantasy of Batman and Gotham City. So I was really intrigued by the idea of that, and even more so because this this book does what I what is my favorite thing about Batman books, and that is making Gotham City a character in itself. So I touched on this a little bit in our uh, Joker spoiler review. If you haven't listened to that, feel free to go back and check that out. Um, But the best Batman stories feature Gotham as another supporting character. Not in the way that, you know, oh, it's just a setting. It's a backdrop for everything that happens. It is actually a living, breathing character that influences everyone who lives in it. So it influences the upper class. It influences the lower class. It influences the police force. It influences the supervillains. Everyone and everything in this story is touched by Gotham City. Uh, just the air about it, the mystique of it, the uh, effect that it has on everyone who lives in it is so heavily focused upon in this book that you really get to experience it as a work of not just uh, fiction, but also satire for the real world. You get to see a lot of stuff that normally isn't touched upon in comics. We're talking the idea of, you know, social justice there's a character in here who's a news anchor he even talks about you know sjw's just need to leave batman alone and all this stuff but i really enjoy and this might be an unpopular opinion but i really enjoy when people bring real world problems into comics a lot of people have this idea of keep politics and you know real world stuff out of my comics but it's like comics have always been that comics have always included um some kind of socioeconomic um, perspective because I don't care what walk of life you come from you're influenced by your surroundings you're influenced by your environment and it's really just I mean it's inevitable it's unavoidable that you're going to bring your life experiences and the stuff that's going on around you into your works of art and what I like is that that doesn't get lost within the Uh, purview of the story but we do get a focus on gotham city and batman's uh, effect on it and that has to do a lot with batman's deteriorating mental state 
Batman is a fascinating character in this and that. This is probably, and I mean, I'm sure this is, you know, I could be wrong. I could be not thinking about something. But uh, this is arguably the most flawed Batman we've ever seen. Uh, this is a Batman who doesn't care about collateral damage, whether that's because of just disregard for other people or because he thinks that throwing money into the Batman Devastation Fund kind of absolves him. Um, this is a story where Batman is really kind of brought to the brink of madness and loses support from pretty much damn near everybody. Uh, there is no Robin in this, and it's pretty quickly established that Jason Todd has already died and that he is... Um, or quote-unquote died, and uh, he's out of the picture. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that um, Jason, in this continuity, was the first Robin. So all this stuff happened, and then after Jason, uh, Dick Grayson comes along. And in this book, he's Nightwing. So he's already been Robin. He already moved on to Nightwing. So him and Batgirl are essentially Batman's uh, supporting cast when it comes to the crime-fighting side. And then... Um, we, t we look at Alfred. Alfred is, uh, pardon me, smacking stuff around here. Uh, Alfred plays a pretty pivotal role here, even though he isn't featured in very much of the book. Uh, we find out that the reason that Batman has been acting so erratic, disregarding public safety, and really just kind of throwing himself into his war, much like he did after the death of Jason Todd in uh, the mainline continuity, is because Alfred's sick. He's dying. And he is, and Batman, along with Mr. Freeze, is trying to use the Freeze technology to heal Alfred, to cure him of whatever is killing him. And right around halfway through the book, maybe it was in the first, you know, second or third issue, um, Alfred dies. Like, Batman gets a building dropped on him essentially he goes back to where alfred is being is you know hooked up to all the uh freeze tech all the medical freeze tech and um he's covered in blood and he's just he doesn't know what to do because his friend his lifelong best friend is dying in this bed the city is starting to turn against him and he doesn't know what to do so he passes out from the blood loss and he wakes up and he finds out that alfred switched them that Bruce was now hooked up to the medical freeze tech and Alfred gave his life to allow Bruce to live as he always did because he is ultimately a good soldier and um, has given really everything, given up his entire life to uh, in service of Bruce Wayne and his war on crime. And we see that Alfred dies here because he gives his life-saving uh, medicine to make sure that Bruce survives. And it's tragic. It is sad. Um, I remember reading through this the first time and openly gasping when I read this issue. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because you see that that was the person who was really um, holding Bruce together and really allowing, really kind of keeping him focused. And it's after this incident that Bruce gets more and more uh, erratic, more and more violent to the point that he is you know, physically and violently beating on a defenseless Jack Napier at times, as well as um, really taking out his anger and his frustration on everybody around him, including uh, Nightwing and Batgirl. And Batman really is kind of, you know, fighting from behind throughout this entire book. Uh, he pretty quickly loses public support 
to Jack Napier after all of his, you know, uh, lack of accountability and the idea of police brutality being um, really uh, attached to him and his persona. And it's kind of sad watching the entirety of Gotham turn against him. There's even a moment where he's talking to Harley, more on her later, uh, where he's just like, am I the only person who hasn't lost their goddamn mind? Like, am I the only person who still sees that he's the Joker and that this could be in a ruse? And so not only does he lose public support, at a certain point, he gets his ass kicked by Jack Napier. And he is arrested, he is locked up in Arkham Asylum, and it is only after uh, Jack kind of loses control of Gotham to uh, Neo-Joker that Jack is forced to team up with Batman once again, and Batman is able to ultimately help to defeat Neo-Joker and, you know, restore the city. So this book also ends with a fantastic cliffhanger and leaves us with not just a satisfying ending, but the uh, the opening for a sequel to come through, which, of course, is in uh, is currently being released as well. Um, and the book ends really with him revealing his identity to Gordon, which is huge. Um, there's this idea that Gordon has kind of always known, but he's just kind of ignored it. And that's that's my preferred version of their relationship. Like, my headcanon, Gordon has known for a very long time, but he just... Because he's a detective. He's a master detective. And so he just kind of turns a blind eye to it because if he ever acknowledged it or he ever accepted it, then it would cause a lot of problems. But uh, Batman reveals himself to, jo- to, uh, to Gordon, who has a very tumultuous relationship with him throughout this book. Uh, Gordon is instrumental in capturing Batman. He's instrumental in the GTO and in establishing that and really getting them to uh, to a place where they could start doing some good and really taking the war on crime to the criminals who are a part of it. And so Batman goes through a full cycle of learning how to uh, deal with his own flaws, his own insecurities, and really learning to move on after the death of Alfred and really the changing ground underneath him. But the big, uh, the big star of this book, the one who really steals the show, is of course the Joker. But not necessarily the Joker. I'm talking about Jack Napier. So Jack Napier is the original identity of this version of the Joker, and he's also the person who becomes when he ingests the uh, the pills that we eventually learn were created and distributed by Harley Quinn. And I love it. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy, pretty early on in preparation t- for... Uh, or really kind of to promote the first issue dropping, he revealed that Jack Napier, or at least this version of Jack Napier, was based on Don Draper from Mad Men. Y'all know how much I love me some John Hamm and some Don Draper, and I think that was a perfect character to put into this. So it's basically, what if Don Draper went up against Batman? I have been a longtime supporter of John Hamm playing Bruce Wayne, but having Don Draper go up against Batman is just fantastic. The drive, the uh, narcissism, the egotism that go along with him 
really makes for a good analog for the Joker's new persona. And um, first of all, I love the fact that they call him Jack Napier. That's a callback to uh, Batman 89. And I, I love it. I love it. Um, but overall, you really get to see that Jack Napier is honestly trying to make Gotham a better place. He goes through all of these not so legal means but he really is genuinely trying to make gotham better and he just thinks that gotham would be much better off without batman in it which of course is debatable and it's possible and it's arguable that batman really um uh not just encourages the super criminal but also uh inspired them so there's a lot of uh, varying shades of gray here and i love that sean gordon murphy took the time to make jack napier not just uh, another facet of the joker's personality but also made him someone who you want to root for you realize that he's doing you know really bad stuff to make ends meet but at the same time he's genuinely trying to make gotham a better place he goes to backport he relates with them you know they're the disenfranchised they're the ones who have been stepped on and he who you know would know more about being disenfranchised and being stepped on than the guy who gets punched around by batman every single night so um this whole bid that he has to become city councilman which he eventually does uh win the election really is in service of him trying to make gotham say that they don't need batman and so he is um in favor of using some pretty unsavory means. I love how he takes control of Gotham's uh, super criminal underworld by using Clayface and pouring them into the drinks that everyone is drinking from to essentially get control of everyone through the use of Clayface. Um, it's fantastic, and it's something that we've never seen before. And this book has a lot of that, which I love. And Jack Napier is really this tragic hero because at a certain point we realize that the medication is having less and less effect. And so he is now on a ticking clock and there's only a certain amount of time before the Joker takes control immediate or takes control back completely. And making him this tragic figure who is unfortunately not going to get to see the, um, the, results of what he does and he's not going to be able to see the seeds that he plants bear fruit is tragic and it's sad and his relationship with harley quinn and with all of the other uh criminals in gotham is fascinating to watch because he comes from a very different um place than the joker does we're going to talk about that in a little bit but i really appreciated jack napier as a character here and i think that there's just so much to um to go with him and that includes his relationship with harley quinn and this might be the best thing about this book is that it gives us a rationalization for harley quinn's inconsistent character and how they do that is so innovative I think and is so well done because you find out that the harley quinn that we know the harley quinn that we are all uh you know openly familiar with is 
this uh, the, the Harley Quinn that we're kind of more familiar with today, the uh, Margot Robbie, Suicide Squad inspired, you know, hot topic wearing sex kitten that we're kind of used to uh, Harley Quinn being nowadays. And I think the Arkham games definitely had a big hand in that as well, is not the Harley Quinn that we were first introduced to in like the animated series. And you find out that there's been two Harley Quinns this whole time. And that the original Harley Quinn is the Harleen Quinzel that we know because she is the one who was a psychiatrist at Arkham Asylum, fell in love with the Joker, and became part of his crusade. But at a certain point, namely the um, kidnapping and torture of Jason Todd, she turned Joker over to Batman and she gave up her life of crime. And at a certain point, this new girl, her name was Marion Drew, uh, who was a depressed, suicidal uh, bank teller, encountered the Joker while he was robbing a bank. And the Joker, because he's insane and so narcissistic that he wouldn't even notice, uh, just started calling her Harley absentmindedly. And for years, we don't know exactly how long, but it's assumed that it was like five, maybe ten years ago that uh, this new Harley Quinn has been the current Harley Quinn and Joker just never noticed there was a difference. And I love that. I love that like it gives us a reason for us having very two just, and I say us just as a general audience, having two very different and distinct versions of Harley Quinn, the kind of funny uh, psychiatrist goofball that we all know and the more... Um, uh, the more seductive, kind of wild card, um, kooky Harley Quinn that is kind of more commonplace nowadays. I like that. I really like that, and I wish they would implement that in the comics because it would it makes so much sense why there's such a disparity between these two characters. But they also give us a reason to care about Harleen Quinzel and about her relationship with Jack. She's the one who, you know, initially fell in love with the Joker because she saw Jack Napier underneath. And Jack's uh, dual personalities of Jack Napier and the Joker, ha each having a Harley that associates with them, Harleen and Marion, really gives them a lot to work with and really uh, provides the thrust for the events of this book. You know, this doesn't, the events of the main events of this book, you know, where everything kind of goes off the rails, doesn't happen if Marion Drew doesn't go insane trying to bring the Joker back. And becomes the Neo Joker and causes all of Jack's initial plans to fail. So, really dug what they did with both the Harleys here and the kind of climactic scene where the Batmobile is rushing towards this uh, narrow passageway and it's not going to fit through. They're both going to die, but you know the new Harley, the Neo Joker, flies up and she on a Roxy Rockets rocket, and she's like, Joker can hop on. Leave that other Harley, join me, and you'll live. And Jack's just like, nah. And he ejects Harley 
out through the bat cycle of the Batmobile. Batmobile explodes, seemingly killing Jack. And then we just get this showdown between Harley and Marion. And I loved it. Really enjoyed the characterization for both of them. Really distinguishing the two of them. Uh, there's a cover for, I think it's White Knight number three or number four where it shows the two of them, and I just love the visual difference between the two. It's it's just fantastic. Um, and that really speaks to each of them having their own version of the Joker and how much he's changed over the years between uh, the initial Harley to this new Harley. Uh, Jack and the Joker are very different people. We see that uh, the Joker is this like burning you know, fire underneath of Jack, and he's afraid of the Joker. He doesn't want him to come back out. The moments that he, you know, slips out because the medication isn't, is slowly becoming less and less effective is scary for him. And he has all of these repressed memories that only the Joker knows and that he doesn't know. So they're really established as two different characters inhabiting the same body. And there's even a tease at the end that kind of uh, opens the door for a lot of the stuff that happens in the sequel, Curse of the White Knight, uh, where Jack talks about how he discovered and learned about the Joker in Arkham Asylum. So we don't know exactly uh, where the Joker personality comes from, but having the two be so different from each other and finding out that you know later on uh, the Joker didn't didn't kill. Jason Todd. He actually just tortured him until uh, Jason gave up Bruce's true or Batman's true identity, and then Joker just released him, and Jason just never came back. First of all, opens the door for a fantastic Red Hood storyline, you know, possibly in Curse of the White Knight or in a uh, a third book. But overall, it just it really shows how awful and sadistic the Joker is and how much Jack Napier wants to be different and wants to get away from that persona. He wants to be an upstanding citizen. He wants to be someone who creates genuine change, and that makes you want to root for him, while at the same time knowing that Joker is bubbling just under the surface. And the tragic final scene with them where uh, Jack is being led back into Arkham Asylum before he can turn into the Joker again. And he has one last request from Gordon to marry him and Harleen. And the two of them are about to be married. Uh, they exchange vows. Harley says, I do. And the moment that Jack is about to say, I do as well, he coughs. He starts to lose control. And then the Joker says, I do. So... I mean, technically, officially, Harley is married to the Joker now, is married to the side of him that she didn't want. And that's beautiful, it's tragic, and it's everything that this book really is. And so that um, also really kind of speaks to this idea that um, the book feeds into the Morrison model. Now, what is the Morrison model, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. Uh, the Morrison model, as it's kind of commonly known, is this idea that Grant Morrison set up during his run on Batman. He started a little bit before Final Crisis and pretty much took Batman all the way into the New 52 with Batman Incorporated. And this idea that uh, Grant Morrison came up with, which became the Morrison model, is that everything happened. Every single bit of Batman history happened in some form or fashion. So all of it makes sense. Uh, we see that 
in specifically in Batman R.I.P., where it kind of goes over and talks about how every single thing that we've ever read about Batman, we're talking about Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, Modern Age, all of that stuff happened in the history of the Batman in some version. And that is shown off in this book you see a lot of the stuff that we're familiar with the death of jason todd um, a lot of the stuff that uh, has to do with batman's background nightwing batgirl all that stuff we also see uh different memorabilia at one point in um batman or in joker's cell uh showing off different versions of batman that we are all know and are familiar with and there's a big heavy push towards the animated series and a lot of the stuff that happened in that book we get uh, baby doll who is strictly an animated series character uh, we also get a lot of references to events that happened in the animated series uh, harley talks about the time where she was uh, i think the episode's called uh, harley's holiday where she tries to go uh, straight after getting out of Arkham Asylum, and she ends up, you know, through circumstances somewhat out of her control, goes insane again and goes back to crime, and Batman buys her a dress. They mention that here. Um, but in no form or fashion does the book show off the fact that it is living within the Morrison model than the Batmobiles. Because there's a shot... There's a couple shots, uh, both in the Batcave as well as near the end of the book where everyone's kind of suiting up and getting ready to, you know, go out on uh, on patrol to take, you know, Gotham back from Neo-Joker and her army of supervillains, where you see all of the Batmobiles, and I'm talking all of them. So you see the custom, you know, the original design of the Batmobile for this book. But you also see, I'm flipping through the pages right here, and you also see the Batmobile from the 1989 film, as well as the Batman Returns. You see the Tumblr from the Dark Knight films. You see the Bat Tank. You see my favorite, the animated series Batmobile. There's a moment where there the GTO is trying to hunt down uh, Batman because he's they've issued a warrant for his arrest, and they're like, the only way that we're going to be able to you know compete with him is to use an emp and they're like but all of you know the emp that's going to fry his batmobile is also going to fry all of our cars so we need to use something older to catch him we use need to use something that's analog and all of a sudden out of the shadows after they use the emp we see the uh keaton batmobile gordon's driving it and it is just oh it's gorgeous just seeing all of these batmobiles show up is incredible and it really speaks to this idea and what i like so much about the morrison model of everything happening in some form or fashion and really allowing that to um to influence the characters and their uh their motivations in this story um overall i just i love this book i love this book so much um this is one of my favorite books featuring batman in a very long time and i absolutely think that you should pick this up and if you haven't picked this up or even if you read it while it was in single issues uh pick up the trade because it involves a lot of stuff it adds you know here and there a lot of stuff that wasn't in the initial uh 
comics in the initial issues. Um, a lot of extended stuff, a lot of stuff that Sean Gordon Murphy had to kind of cut out because it wasn't yet a black label book, but now that it's part of that line and it can be adult, I'm using quotations, um, it really allows the book to breathe and feel like it is a more complete story. So I love it. I think it's an excellent Joker story. It's an excellent Batman story. And uh, it really opened the door for a lot of stuff to happen. And it is currently happening in Batman Curse of the White Knight, its sequel. Uh, it's only four issues deep. We'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, but it's just a fantastic story. It sets up a great world, does amazing world building with characters who you care about. And it is one of the best modern Joker stories in a very long time. So... I love it. I think you should pick this up. This is a must-buy if you are a Batman fan, if you are a Joker fan. And it really is a classic Shakespearean tragedy about Gotham City, its Dark Knight, and its White Knight. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing season eight of Arrow, the final season in the lead up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, this week we are reviewing episode number two entitled Welcome to Hong Kong. And this episode pretty much picks up right where last episode left off with the destruction of Earth 2. Oliver wakes up back on Earth 1, but not in Star City. He wakes up in Hong Kong alongside Diggle and uh, Laurel, who is now having to grapple with the fact that her entire Earth is now gone. Um, this episode was just really good. <laughs> um, Hong Kong is a pretty familiar uh, locale to those of you who have been watching Arrow for a very long time. Uh, it was a pretty big feature in uh, flashbacks for pretty much an entire season and I loved having Oliver go back there but the thing that I was really interested in I was really intrigued by is the monitor uh, we don't really quite know exactly what the monitor's deal is right now we don't know why he's having Oliver collect these things we don't know why he had him get the uh, dwarf star fragments last episode and why he wants this scientist for this episode and that's why Oliver and the gang are in Hong Kong. Um, I have this weird feeling that the monitor is going to end up actually being the anti-monitor. And I don't know why I'm just getting this weird feeling. Just because the monitor is way more dickish than he was in the comics. And I might be wrong about this, but from what I remember about Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, the monitor was more of a benevolent creature. He wasn't as, like... Um, vindictive as this monitor seems to be he basically tells Oliver that Earth 2 getting destroyed was his fault which it absolutely was not and he tasks Oliver and makes sure that he knows like don't fail like if you fail all your all your stuff's gone and it's going to be your fault so we do find out later that uh, the monitor is working with Lila as well which we all know Lila's going to be a uh, harbinger. We don't know if it's this version of Lila or another version of Lila, but we do know that that's coming. So 
keep your eye on the monitor for sure but what you should keep your eye on for this episode which i loved is just it has a bunch of good old-fashioned fighting uh one of the big uh i think positives from those early arrow seasons season one to season two that immediately grabbed viewers including myself were uh, the fight scenes very physical oliver is a very physical character and fight scenes with him and diggle and him and um other characters throughout the series really kept that show going and this episode is a prime example of that uh the first you know couple fights in this episode Oliver's out of costume. He's just Oliver. There's no arrows. There's no green arrow. He's really just fighting as Oliver, and I love that. Um, it's just... it's What this season, I think, really is representing is a lot of the core stuff that we loved about the show itself. Uh, you can love it. You can hate it. But Arrow really takes pride in a lot of its fight choreography, almost in as much as its story, and you can tell sometimes because the fight choreography seems to be uh, stronger than the story uh, at certain times throughout the run of the show. But the fight choreography here is just fantastic. It's gritty, it's hand-to-hand, -hand, it's brutal, it is fantastic. And it's during one of these initial uh, fight scenes that we get the reintroduction of Katana! Katana's back, she's amazing i missed her she was a much better version of the character than we got in suicide squad and i'm glad that she got brought back into this to fight china white who is another returning character all the way back from season one so i like the throwbacks i like the battle between china white and uh, katana even though china white did end up coming out on top uh stabbing katana and getting ready to fatally kill her before laurel intervened um it's just good stuff all around. And then we also got to see uh, a lot of stuff from Laurel. She was kind of the MVP for this episode. We got to see her grappling with this idea that everyone she knew was gone right after, you know, maybe not right after, but pretty soon after she just got everybody back and started to turn her life around being a hero. Um, she was working alongside Lila to try and track down the scientist. It's really... Um, it's really fascinating, and I'm not sure exactly where she's going to go. We do know that she's going to be part of the spinoff, which I don't know if it's officially called Green Arrow and the Canaries yet, but she is going to be a pretty prominent role on that show. So I'm glad that we're finally going back to uh, focusing on her, because Laurel's a fantastic character, and the Earth-1 version of her was not given nearly enough to do. So I'm glad that this more... Uh, I guess you could say more uh, flippant, more uh, hard-edged Laurel is getting the spotlight now. And she's, you know, she lets out a sick canary cry to disarm China White and to get her off of Katana. So really liked her. Lila's keeping a secret. Uh, and she's not just keeping a secret from Team Arrow, but she's keeping a secret from her husband, John. Um, I don't know where that's going to end up. Once again, I think this Lila might be working with the monitor and she might end up being the harbinger um but we don't know for sure uh we also got a flash forward to 2040 uh dealing with the new team arrow against the deathstroke gang and we got maybe i missed this before but we got this weird bombshell that uh connor's brother is john diggle jr it's not connor um in the uh star star city 20 
39 episode of Legends of Tomorrow, we found out that Connor's original name was John Diggle Jr., but he changed it to Connor because he let his father down. And I just kind of, I guess, assumed that this version of Connor was the same way, but it's not. Um, Connor's brother, who is JJ, and I should have gotten that immediately, is John Diggle Jr., and Connor is adopted. Maybe I missed this. Maybe they covered this before, but uh, we find out that Connor is the son of Bronze Tiger, which I love. I'm okay with that. Uh, We talked about last week how I wanted... Uh, Connor to have an identity and making him, you know, this new version of the Bronze Tiger, I'm down for. I'm cool with that. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Uh, when it comes to the actual events of the episode, uh, it's just kind of your standard unshaped, you know, team who's not really all there together yet going up against this very unified uh, enemy. But I'm hoping that it's going to get a little bit um, more compelling in future episodes. Not that it's bad. It's just it's definitely the the 2040 stuff, the flash forwards, are definitely the weak point of Arrow so far in these first two episodes. So I'm hoping that it picks up later. (laughs) Um, But overall, I really enjoyed the episode. Uh, The crisis is oncoming. And it is going to be tearing stuff apart real soon. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to seeing where uh, Oliver's journey takes him next. Hopefully we get to see more alternate Earths. And um, we did get the hint that they are going to be going to Nanda Parbat. So we might get to see some Nyssa. We might get to see some Thea. And I am all for it. But that is going to do it for this week's weekly review. Tune in next week for episode three. And for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop or on Comixology. However you pick up your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request that I try out, feel free to do so on either of our social medias on Instagram or Twitter at GeeksplainedPod, that's at GeeksplainedPod, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to Geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week with the Geeks, Geeksplained, I'm going to try that again, the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And uh, to the, I think to the surprise of no one. My Geek Slain pick of the week of last week was Superman Smashes the Clan number one, written by Jean Lun Yang with art by Gurihiru. Um, this was a masterpiece. Just so good. I love the story of Superman versus the Clan of the Fiery Cross. I love that it's finally bring, being brought into comic form. I love the art style. It's very anime-based. I love that this is really... It's not like directly adapting um, the audio drama, but it is taking enough cues from it, the fact that it's set... Uh, much earlier in our history, in our in our nation's history, uh, the fact that Superman is still he doesn't know how to fly yet. He's never uh, encountered kryptonite before. Um, this is my 
I think my favorite version of the Man of Steel. It's when he's still like not almighty and uh, godlike powerful. He's just really strong, really fast, and really dead set on doing what's right. And he is so good in this. There's so many uh, Superman-isms littered throughout the book. Um, it's just so good. It's just so good. It's exactly the characterization that you would come to expect from Superman. But it's also, at the same time, through the eyes of the Lee family, specifically Roberta, who is, I would say, probably our lead. Uh, her older brother is also... Uh, a big part of the book, but it's really kind of focused on Roberta's uh, point of view, where is she's kind of viewing how Tommy seems to fit in. There's a lot of interesting uh, um looks into the racial instability back in 1946. We had just gotten out of World War II, so um, Asian uh, just... Uh, Asian public image was at an all-time low in the U.S. Uh, this was also around the time that the Ku Klux Klan was beginning to gain power again. Um, and it's such an interesting snapshot of time. And looking at looking at it through the lens of comic book storytelling, specifically through a Superman story, is so fascinating. And I cannot wait to pick up the rest of these issues. What I also loved... Um, was at the very end of the issue, Jean Lun Yang uh, peppers through his personal story of growing up as an Asian American, as well as kind of the history of the Ku Klux Klan during uh, this period, as well as some of the boom periods and some of the um, more controversial periods of time that they participated in at the end of the book. It's great in that it's giving you a story that is timeless while also being a story of its time. This is a story that is very focused on an America that was heavily divided and an America that was more than willing to uh, not just allow the Ku Klux Klan to exist, but to also allow them to thrive. And at the same time, it is very uh, topical for today with all the uh, just ridiculous amount of um, racism and social inequality that's going on today. So this is an incredible book. This is one that I absolutely think you should be picking up. If you didn't pick up any other book from last week, you should pick up this book. Um, it's just, I love it. I love it so much. Um, Superman is also sporting my favorite version of the S-Shield, which is the yellow border with the black background with the red S. It's my favorite version of that shield. It's his classic uh, Fleischer look. So I love it. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. We have one, two, three, four, five books for you this week. A little bit light uh, if you compare it to the last few even you know the last month and a half we've been hitting you know double digits at times but this is a much more reserved week i think they're finally slowing down for a little bit before they probably kick back up in the uh, holiday time but we are going to kick off this week with detective comics number 1014 written by pete j tomasi with art by doug monkey uh this is continuing the mr freeze storyline that i've been really enjoying doug monkey is a welcome return to this book um he just works so well with like 
drawing Batman and his associated rogues gallery. He just he really knows what he's doing when it comes to making them unique but also horrifying. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Nora Freeze has been the apple of Mr. Freeze's eye for a long time. For years, he has toiled and suffered to try and cure her of her ailments and bring back the life they had together. He has finally done it, but will Nora Freeze be the same person she was when she was frozen? Or is there something broken that can't be fixed? So we've dabbled with this idea of Nora Freeze being unfrozen for a, pretty much the entirety of... Um, Mr. Freeze's comic career ever since he got that wonderful character revamp by Paul Dini, Bruce Timm, and the entire team behind the Batman the Animated Series. But I'm interested in that this is going to be the first time that she's being unfrozen in canon. So I'm looking forward to this, and I definitely think this is one you should pick up. Next up, we have Avengers number 25, written by Jason Aaron with art by Stefano Caselli. Uh, this is the next chapter in the challenge of the Ghost Riders. Uh, I've been enjoying it. It's, uh, it's good, and I think that this is a good time for if you're a fan of Ghost Rider, any version, whether it's the Robbie Reyes version, whether it's the uh, Johnny Blaze version, or even the newer uh, Cosmic Ghost Rider version. Uh, this is a good time to be picking up this book, but I will say I think the book has kind of lost steam a little bit since the end of The War of the Realms. Uh, that really was a turning point in the book, and I'm kind of... Just waiting until this story passes so we can get back into the uh, Squadron Supreme of America story that's kind of been brewing in the background. But either way, let's jump into the synopsis here. Gone to Hell! Challenge of the Ghost Riders concludes. The Avengers go to hell to join the wild race for the soul of Robbie Reyes, who's desperate to learn the truth once and for all about what sort of Ghost Rider he's become. But those sorts of answers always come with a dreadful cost, especially when Mephisto is involved. So anytime that Mephisto is involved in any Marvel comic storyline, you know that the characters involved in that storyline are going to come out different. So hopefully something big happens here that we will see the repercussions of as the uh, Jason Aaron Avengers run continues. Next up, we have Batman Superman number three, written by Joshua Williamson with art by David Marquez. This book has been great. The last two issues have been stellar. Been really enjoying it. And we got a great cliffhanger last issue with uh, Superman effectively infecting himself with the Batman Who Laughs serum so that he can infiltrate the Batman Who Laughs uh, Secret Six. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Who are the Secret Six? Part three. Is Superman the newest member of the Batman Who Laughs Secret Six? It certainly looks that way, and Batman may be powerless to stop the Man of Steel and his own demented doppelganger. The Dark Multiverse's most dangerous Bruce Wayne is loose in our world, and he has our world's greatest superhero at his side. Who do you turn to when there's no one to trust? So, even though it looks like Superman is going to be undercover, it does look like Batman's going to be on his own for a little bit, which, I mean, it's a Batman-Superman book, so I'm not sure how they're going to balance that out. But um, I'm excited for us to really get into the Secret Six and hopefully start to get some backstory on why the Batman Who Laughs chose who he chose to be part of his team. 
Uh, next up, we have King Thor number two of four, written by Jason Aaron with art by Asad Rivich. Um, I'm going to be really honest with you guys. Um, King Thor was not my favorite book of the week when it when uh, issue issue one came out. Um, I thought it was a little long in the tooth, a little heavy on the exposition, and I'm hoping that now that we've kind of established all the stuff that was in that book, we can move into more um, active storytelling. Uh, I love what Jason Aaron's done with Thor, and I think that he, if he has a plan to make sure that his finale is as bombastic and huge as possible, then he knows what he's doing, but I'm just overall hoping that this is a better issue than the first issue. So let's jump into the synopsis here. It's the battle foretold for centuries, Thor versus Loki in the final fight of the millennia. The universe is dying, and Allfather Thor is its only hope. But to save all life, the greatest god in history must defeat the one person who has always managed to escape his wrath. And that was before he got his hands on the weapon that almost killed three generations of Thor, and stripped the god of thunder of his legendary hammer. Loki, god of lies, wielder of all black the necrosword, finally faces his brother at the end of all time. So, epic sounding synopsis, um, and the end of last issue left off on a really good cliffhanger with uh, the god butcher showing back up to seemingly assist Thor in this final battle. Jason Aaron's just taken everything full circle here. So I'm really looking forward to this. I Again, I just want it to be more bombastic than the first issue. And then finally, my big book of the week, I think is apropos, is uh, Batman Curse of the White Knight, number four of eight, written by and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, this book really kicked into high gear after that first issue, and I've been loving every single issue since. Um... It's just real good, and we're at the halfway point for this story. This was right around the time where things, you know, took a sharp left turn in the original Batman White Knight story. So I'm um, really looking forward to this, and really looking forward to seeing what they do with this new Azrael storyline that they've got going. So let's jump into the synopsis here. After a shocking tragedy strikes the Bat family and Montoya takes the reins, Babs defies the GTO and goes rogue in the hunt for Azrael. When her new methods prove almost too effective, Batman intervenes, leaving Harley to her own devices in the wake of her own emergency. So, I'm interested um, from what I've seen from... Uh, previews and people who have reviewed the book this seems to be a very uh, Batgirl heavy issue which I'm totally down for big fan of the Barbara Gordon version of Batgirl big even bigger fan of Barbara Gordon as Oracle uh, this I think this Elseworld is pretty far removed from the idea of Barbara Gordon ever becoming Oracle from what I can tell if that changes, then uh, I will be pleasantly surprised. But as we have it, I've been really enjoying the world building that Sean Gordon Murphy has been providing here, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does 
uh, with the back half of this story. And that does it for this week's comics countdown. I know it's a short one, it's a smaller one, but uh, some really, really good books this week that I'm really looking forward to. So to recap, we have Detective Comics number 1014, Avengers number 25, Batman Superman number 3, King Thor number 2 of 4, and Batman Curse of the White Knight number 4 of 8. If you have a book that I missed or that I should be picking up, feel free to let me know on the social medias or through email. I always love uh, discovering new books and getting to read them. So really looking forward to that. Uh, Next week, um, who knows if this uh, smaller comics uh, countdown is going to continue. I haven't looked at the uh, lineup for next week, but uh, we'll see. I'm really, really looking forward to Batman Curse of the White Knight. Rereading uh, Batman White Knight has got me all jazzed up and ready to go again for uh, this week's issue of Curse of the White Knight. And I'm, you know, I'm excited to see where Sean Gordon Murphy goes from here. Um, it seems like he's steadily building his own Gotham and his own world, so I would not be surprised if we got a third. Uh, iteration in this, you know, White Knight trilogy, but overall, really looking forward to it, and I cannot wait to pick up Curse of the White Knight. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, Would love to know all of your thoughts about everything that we touched on here. Before we go, uh, I do want to do our Geeksplain mailbag. We have one, count them, one letter this week that I received uh, by email. And I wanted to just let this person know that I appreciate them writing in. They are the, they are flying solo this week. Um, So I'm pulling it up here and we have a question from Christine from Tampa, Florida. Thanks for writing in Christine. And she asks, do you think Barry Allen will die in Crisis on Infinite Earths? Um, You know, I'm not sure. I don't th- I think okay, so I'm going to I'm going to rephrase. I think Barry Allen very possibly will die, but I don't think it's going to be our Barry Allen. And I'm going to explain what that means. So in the uh opening to this most recent season of The Flash, we did uh have that conversation Barry did with the Monitor where he said The Flash must die. So we don't know exactly that um, that that means that Barry has to die. Uh, we do have several different versions of the Flash running around. We have the Accelerated Man. Uh, we have Wally West, possibly. We have Jay Garrick. Uh, we did see in the most recent Flash episode that Jay Garrick is slowing down um, and might end up giving his life. The Barry Allen that I think is going to be giving his life, though, is the Earth-90 Flash. John Wesley Shipp's uh, original Flash, who made an appearance in last year's crossover for Elseworlds, I think might just be the Flash that the Monitor is talking about, even though he's being very vague. Um, It fits in with Barry Allen dying during the crisis, and it allows our Flash to continue on. Um, I... I think that's the way they're going to go. I think it's going to be the Barry Allen from Earth-90 just so that they can have a Flash that dies and it's Barry Allen so it nods back to the original Crisis event in the comics. And I think that's how it's going to go down. So we'll just have to see when Crisis happens. 
So thank you once again to Christine. Um, thanks for writing in. Make sure you get your questions in, whether it's uh, on either of our social medias, at Pod. that's at P-O-D for Instagram or Twitter, or through email to geeksplain.gmail.com. Feel free to send any and all questions in and have them featured as part of our Geeksplained mailbag. And that is going to do it for everything that we've talked about today. I'm really glad that we finally got to sit down and talk about uh, White Knight. It's almost two years old is this story so i'm glad i finally got to be able to talk about it i love the story i definitely think it's something you should pick up especially if you're if you're in that joker mood uh it's a great book to pick up and curse of the white knight has been really good as well uh the first issue wasn't as strong but every single issue after that has been really good and uh this week's it should be shaping up to be just as strong if not stronger so i'm looking forward to it next week Next week is going to be the final uh, installment of Joketober, and we are going out with a bang. Last year, if you remember, I did for Halloween a watch-along of It Chapter 1. It was terrifying. I didn't enjoy it. Uh, But I did it for you guys so that you could uh, listen to me be just terrified of a clown because I hate clowns. Um, and this year I decided that in the spirit of Joker and in the spirit of Halloween, I'm going to do another watch along. So, uh, it'll be something that you can pair up with your version of the film, sync, sync us up. We'll get everything all timed out on that episode and we will, uh, play and you can have it'll be like i'm just watching it with you so um i am going to leave the reveal of what joker film i am going to be watching but definitely uh it's definitely a classic joker film that i think everyone can agree is a fantastic version of that character so look forward to that for next week i'll be releasing that a day late so i'll be releasing it actually on halloween uh just to you know, feed into the holiday. So expect that next week. Um, Same geek time, same geek channel. I guess not same geek time. Different geek time, but same geek channel. And um, yeah, it's going to be really good. I'm really excited about it. I'm recording the watch along um, this weekend so that I can have it ready to drop on Halloween. And I am super excited about it. I haven't watched this film in a while, and I am excited to share with all of you my thoughts and my feelings while watching it. Uh, so look forward to that next week. Uh, but for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.